What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Ryan Shea is the co-founder of Blockstack, a new internet for decentralized apps. In this conversation, Ryan and I discuss freedom of speech, manipulation of user data in the digital world, how decentralization can improve the internet, and how governance will evolve in the digital age. Ryan is well-read and refreshingly intelligent. There are many great takeaways in this one, so I hope you find it as valuable as I did. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, here with uh, Ryan Shea. Uh, welcome. Thank you for uh, for coming to spend some time with us. Thank you so much, Tom. Absolutely. We'll, uh, we'll try to keep this under two hours. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, so for people who don't know, uh, let's just go through kind of your background. Um, where'd you grow up? You know, high school, what are your interests, all that, and then we'll get into uh, to some of the later years. Sure. Uh, so <clears throat> I grew up mostly in, in Secaucus, New Jersey. I was actually, my parents moved around quite a bit uh, when I was younger. I was born in White Plains, uh, hopped around New Jersey a little bit, uh, Connecticut, New York. Um, but uh, I went to Secaucus High School. I was um, uh, very interested in science, mathematics, uh, was a uh, captain of the uh, cross country team. Nice. You know, captain of uh, indoor, outdoor track. Uh, What's the farthest you ever run? The farthest? In one, one, uh, one setting. Uh, you know, it w- it's not actually that far. It's like 15 miles. I, I've never done a marathon before. Really? Uh, no, but it, it is something that I want to do. It was most, I mean, you know, you think like we were, we were doing 5K, 3.1 mile races. Got it. Um, so it was a much shorter distance. And in track, my main um, distance was a mile. Uh, so um, that was really what I specialized in. I also did two miles. Also did like half a mile, uh, you know, 800, um, four by four. Yep. Uh, some occasionally 400. But that wasn't my, yeah, my yeah. forte in particular. It's uh, run, running's a wild sport. Once I know, you, yeah. know, you get into all the details. Yeah. Uh, all right. So uh, Seacox High School, and then where did yep. you go after that? Uh, then I went to Princeton. Okay. Uh, went there was did um, mechanical and aerospace engineering for my major, mm-hmm. and then did a minor in computer science. Got it. And uh, that, that's not a very common major. So what was kind of the thought process? You know, what were you going to do afterwards? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was always interested in in inventing things. Uh, mm-hmm. My, my grandfather, who's an inventor, he has 17 patents um, across, like, that, that have been used in so many different places. I mean, mm. <clears throat> pretty ubiquitous. Like, he has patents that were in, like, the sprinkler systems that power most of the buildings in the city, mm-hmm. um, you know, since the 70s. Um, patents in uh, the, uh, the lunar landing module, mm-hmm. stealth bombers, all, you know. All kinds of stuff. Weapons used in the Vietnam War, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, so things like that, I was just super, super interested in. Um, and he would like sit down with me and, and we would go through some like, uh, engineering puzzles and things like that. And they're mm-hmm. just super fascinating. So a, a big part of that, um, really sparked my interest in being an inventor. And that's what, you know, when you're, when you're in high school, 
uh, there is no the closest thing to that is actual science. So that's Absolutely. why like that's why science was was what fascinated me the most. You know, physics, chemistry, uh, biology, human anatomy, just everything was just that was that was what I grasped onto. And and of course mathematics because it's so uh, so interrelated. Um, <clears throat> didn't have any computer science classes in high school. Um, would have I wished you know wish that I could have had that opportunity. But mm-hmm. um, when I went to uh, when I went to college, you know. Um, at that point, uh, I was interested in uh, f- really inventing things, and specifically things that were like in the physical world. That's why mechanical engineering really, really spoke to me. Um, and of course, uh, computer science is important for as a component of that. So that's why I was also interested in computer science. But it, it was less like in terms of like um, I was less excited about s- like just pure software at first. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I grew to love more and more over time. Um, and uh, and part of that was is it, you know so I did mechanical and aerospace engineering I did computer science I also was um, very involved in the entrepreneurship club from you know throughout my entire college career mm-hmm. uh, there was a story that uh, one of the one of the presidents of the entrepreneurship club when I was um, a freshman said it was like that we had this uh, this uh, uh, fair for all the different clubs and he told I, I actually don't remember this but this is what he says that um, his name is Nikhil. He uh, uh, he says that when we went to sign up for it, I was the first person online to join the Princeton Entrepreneurship Club. Um, and then later throughout my career, I ended up being a president uh, and and started a bunch of initiatives, including Hack Princeton, one of the largest uh, hackathons in the world, and all these other initiatives. Like really, you know, tripled the size of the of the programs uh, at the school. Um, <coughs> but anyway, so. Um, was interested in mechanical engineering, interested in physical products, started getting deeper, deeper into software. And this is, um, this is 2008 when I was starting my college career. Uh, and this was like, you know, around the time when Y Combinator was starting to gain some steam is around the time when, when, um, uh, Facebook was becoming popular. So it it was, I would say, you know, to some extent before 2005, before 2004, there wasn't that much of a, um, there, there wasn't as much like uh, methodology around starting a company. There wasn't as much knowledge or like like just startup books or there wasn't there wasn't much of an industry around it outside of the like uh, it, it was somewhat esoteric. I would say it was it was mm-hmm. like ve- I think it was pretty confined to Silicon Valley. It was pretty um, there there wasn't much information sharing. It was it was a, it was a harder for people to kind of to kind of get in and and learn how to build. Uh, software just pure software companies um and it seems like that that really picked up um around that time uh and um as and, part and of that i started that, to get interested do you think that's because the media was um kind of sensationalizing you know hey look here comes these companies that are growing really fast and, and there's a lot of money being made by you know kind of the silicon valley um you know, heroic entrepreneur, uh, or do you think of something else that was driving that narrative mm-hmm. and, and kind of the interest into, um, you know, technology startups, etc. Yeah. I think it was a lot of forces. I think like, you know, after the dot com crash, there was like a somewhat of a lull in the industry. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that, that the rise of Facebook, the media attention around it was a very important factor of obviously the rise of Amazon, the rise of Google, um, many other many other internet uh, businesses um, that people were starting to get really exposed to. Um, also, uh, uh, I think Y Combinator was very important 
starting up in, in 2005. Um, I also think, I don't know, for some reason or another, there were a lot of, um, there were classes that were starting, that were coming out that were around entrepreneurship and, mm -hmm. and, and startups. There were books that were coming out, uh, Four Steps to the Epiphany, uh, you know, lean startup, um, some books like the hard thing about hard things came out later. I mean, yep. there's, there's just like some things that it, you didn't see as much of that earlier. And I'm not exactly sure why, but there's something around, um, maybe you needed some, lo some level of critical mass, some amount of, uh, people having exits and going to start on their next company and so on. Uh, you had people like obviously the PayPal mafia, then mm -hmm. the second derivative of that, uh, you know, the next step. I think all those things are very, very important in the intermixing, and that just led to much more of a, of a visible industry um, around startups and entrepreneurship. And that is that started to really pull on me, um, and I got really, really excited about that uh, throughout my college years. Uh, Absolutely. Okay, so, so this is like 08 into 10, 11, yeah. right? All that's going on. Um, where was your interest, or where did you think you were going to end up kind of post-college? Um, you know, kind of sophomore, junior, going into your senior year. What was the plan? Well, I mean, I always wanted to start a company. Um, actually, the first time I applied for Y Combinator was in 2010. Okay. So um, with a really good friend of mine who was a previous president of the Princeton Entrepreneurship Club, mm -hmm. and he was a, a, you know, also knew him from the computer science department. His name is Joseph Perilla. And we were, we actually applied to Y Combinator uh, as a late application in 2010. What we were going to do is drop out of college, and uh, and it was going to be his second time dropping out of Princeton, actually, because he had actually come back uh, for that for his for his uh, for another one of his companies. So you know that early on, I wanted to even start a company and and would was willing to ditch college to some extent. Um, and uh, my uh, what I what I always wanted to do was to start a company right after college. Um, mm -hmm. That was that was like the default path, uh, and I would consider applying to different companies you know one of the companies that i wanted to uh work for like 2011 2012 was uh was path i was really excited about it um <clears throat> ultimately decided not to uh and um ended up right after college um experimenting with a couple different companies that i was uh, that i wanted to start and um and uh eventually st ended up starting a company uh called graph muse um in 2012 mm -hmm. it, when i was um when I'd moved to uh, Philadelphia right okay. afterwards and worked with um, two, two friends of mine uh, to start this, uh, this company, which, would <coughs> which essentially did analysis of social network data mm -hmm. in real time using GPU clusters. So we could uh, do pretty extensive analysis of social networking data that um, is, would normally take hours of computation to do if you had a single core normal, normal CPU. Um, and we could do it and crunch the numbers and get it get um, a uh, an analysis out in a second or a fraction of a second. Wow. Yeah. And we could do that for we, we had a co different couple different customers um, that we did this for. Uh, for example, like gaming companies that they wanted to uh, for them, it's very important to get the uh, their viral loop mm -hmm. like perfect. And they would uh, they would try to try to do and a lot of this was through Facebook. So they would try to they would. They used Facebook as their main distribution channel, and they would get um, people to come and try the try the game. Mm -hmm. But before they even started the game, they would have them invite their friends, and we would help them figure out who were the friends 
that they should surface for them to invite. Because yep. the industry standard at the time was just alphabetically sorted list. So all the Anthony's, Andrew's, and Aaron's of the world were getting like <laughs> you know, hundreds of invites. I'm sure you probably experienced that. Absolutely. So you're, you were getting like the disproportionate share of all the invites. And we're like, whoa, whoa, this is ridiculous. Let's help, you know, come in and... And, 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 uh, and, and so you do the ranking based on like close friends, engagement. Closeness, exactly. Right, Closeness, yeah. like proclivity to like that game, things like that. Yep. Um, and we could do, we actually were able to surface information that people didn't even think that you could get from, from the data yep. uh, in real time. So, so walk me through how you go from that, which is a pretty technical problem, right? And, and uh, I would consider a, you know, early stage startup where you're selling to other companies, yep. right? Kind of the, the technology and, and the data, et cetera. Yep. When do you first come across Bitcoin, mm -hmm. crypto, you know, kind of what is that interaction like? Yeah, I mean, <coughs> I would say it's a it's a pretty, um, it, it's pretty different, and it, uh, you know, in that case, what I mean, what we were, what we were doing was helping businesses make better use of their existing data you know in a sense mm -hmm. like we weren't we weren't really we weren't selling data to them we were helping them take the data that they already had and they already had access to which are these social graphs of their users yep. and helping them analyze it and get insights out of it yep and uh one of the things that uh you know i, I took away from that was just the level of dependence that not just those businesses but our own business had on a company like Facebook. Yep, platform and risk. Exactly, huge amount of platform risk. And we saw that there, there was like this heyday where there's a lot of businesses that were getting built off of Facebook platform. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Zynga, perhaps the most notable. Um, and those days soon came to an end. Yep. And, um, and, and just to clarify, the, the platform risk you're talking about, right, so everyone is on the same page, is basically you build a company on top of a platform, right? Yes. Facebook had a platform. If you were a gaming company, you could come on. They said, hey, we'll give you distribution. We'll, yes. you know, we'll do all these things. Uh, and then at any point in the future, that platform, whether it's Facebook or some other platform, reserves the right to change the rules. Yeah, right? exactly. Or kind of, you know, pull the rug out from underneath these companies. Yep. Um, usually not malicious, but, you know, they're making uh, kind of um, self- uh, self-centered business decisions, yeah, exactly. right? They're, they're doing what's best for themselves. Mm -hmm. And that has a you know, material and sometimes negative impact on yeah. businesses that are built on top. Yes. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, there's a number of companies that, you know, Zynga is probably one of the top ones that, you know, we saw over the last 10 years get built on a platform. The platform changes the rules or, yes. or does something all of a sudden that business goes from highly valuable to not so valuable. Yeah. Um, and you know, good entrepreneurs are going to try to navigate the waters to, to find yeah. some other path forward. But really what ends up happening is they had the best business when they were built on that platform. They no longer can do that. Yeah. And so the warning call, they put to, too many of their eggs in one basket. Yeah. And the warning yeah. call, I think to most founders goes out, Hey, watch out for the platform risk, yep. right? You know, it, it's a double-edged sword. You get the power of the distribution and the connections and the social graph, mm -hmm. but at the same time, you know, you always have this thing in your back of your head where we've got really high platform risk yep. and what's going to happen if the rules change. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, and that happens with Facebook with, you know, think Apple, uh, iOS, Android, Google. Absolutely. Um, well, and, th and that's what makes mm -hmm. those businesses so valuable, exactly, right? Is, yeah. they, is they get the lock in, the network effect, yep. that, that kind of that platform. Mm -hmm. um, and then once they have it, it's really hard to unseat them. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Uh, you look at what hap what's happening with Fortnite. I mean, they're circumventing the Google Play Store altogether so that they don't have to worry about the 30% cut. 
Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so explain this more, what's going on right now. Cause I don't think probably a lot of people understand. Sure. So, um, so there's this, this game, probably, I think maybe the most popular game right now. It's probably it's the most like popular and probably the, one of the highest grossing highest of all time. Grossing, yeah, yeah. Of all time. Wow. Okay. Uh, look how many video games yeah, are making at least billions a year. Yeah. Right? No, seriously. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> Was it top 25? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's at least the top grossing right now. Okay. Um, but yeah, it might be, uh, I have to look into that, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, and, it, and it's like highest in terms of live streaming, maybe highest in terms of it's up there in, act, yep. in users, whatever. Very, very popular. It's very popular. Um, and they are making uh, enormous amounts of money. They really frustrated about the fact that the Google Play Store is taking 30% of all uh, revenue mm-hmm. through the store itself, just like Apple does. Yep. So I think 30%, if you're making, you know, if you're one of these companies, you bring in $100 million. Well, um, now Google or Apple, they take $30 million, mm-hmm. you know, and then that, you know, that's just a huge chunk of your business that's being pulled out. So what they're doing instead is they're allowing the user, they're telling the users, you cannot download it from the, from the play store. You have to download it this way. Um, and they provide instructions on their site. And then if you download it, they can circumvent the, uh, the process completely. It's kind of, I mean, audible does this right in, in terms of the, uh, the audio oh, web purchases. Yeah. So w- w- yep. what you can do is you can download the app in the app store, yep. right? But you're, you cannot purchase an audio book via the mobile app. Yep. Right. Because they would be subject to that 30% fee from Apple or, or Android. Yes, exactly. And so instead they say you have to go to the web and yep. you can purchase books there and then download it to your phone. Yes. And so, you know, Fortnite's not the first one to do this, but, but I think they're kind of the latest example of yep. people circumventing that platform. Right. Yeah, exactly. And in a big part of a big problem with this whole situation is that you have components that these businesses produce and provide that they work well together, mm-hmm. but the business is saying, if you use this, you have to use everything else that we provide. Yep. Uh, and you have to do it exactly the way that we say, or else you're out. Yep. And you know, y- y- you have an iPhone. The iPhone has to use iOS, right? That's the operating system. That's what you see on your screen. When you're on your iPhone with iOS, you have to use the Apple App Store, mm-hmm. right? You have to use. Uh, you have to use some version of Safari mm-hmm. on, even if you're using Chrome on your iPhone, that Chrome browser is actually WebKit in the background with some modifications, mm-hmm. which is, you know, so, so, so Apple is still requiring that you use some kind of version of Safari under the hood behind, yep. behind Chrome. So Apple is saying in our ecosystem, you play by our rules and you use every single thing that we do, even if, so it, it, it and, we, by the way, we take 30% of all of the transactions that come through every single purchase, every single in-app purchase, everything. And that causes lots of problems for, um, for innovation, for competition, for like creating a viable business. Yep. Uh, and obviously a, a company like Amazon is not happy about that, mm-hmm. um, which is why that they do the purchases in the web. Um, and I, you know, I'd, I'd actually be curious what would happen if Apple said, you know, even that you can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, what would happen? I mean, what but could, th- could they, could they actually stop somebody from doing that? Right. Could they basically say, you know, if you want your app in our app store, we're going to tell you how to run your business off of our operating system. <clears throat> they could in the web. I mean, th- there are things that they could do. Mm-hmm. It just depends on what are they willing to do? So mm-hmm. for example, what they could do is they could say, Amazon, if you don't, uh, give us 30% cut through amazon.com when people are on our phones, mm-hmm. then we will 
block your domain, mm-hmm. right? Now the, they would they would never do that, mm-hmm. um, and part of the reason is because there is um, there is precedent for that. There is like um, we have gotten so accustomed to a free web uh, where like um, there aren't restrictions of the things that you can do when you visit a website, mm-hmm. but we've also it, when it comes to native apps gotten accustomed to a world where there are gatekeepers so we're just we're just used to that it's kind of like there's like a precedent there's like case law there's like a um in some some kind of uh habituation and Absolutely. so they would to some extent i think if they were to say amazon.com um, we're blocking you on mobile devices well there would be two issues um one is their users would be very angry and potentially it would be give them a reason to switch mm-hmm. to another phone um the second issue is it would probably cause enough of a um, enough of a public backlash or like recognition that that could lead to some kind of antitrust uh, situation. Absolutely. Um, and I think they're co- to some extent like towing the antitrust line right now, where they're like doing just enough that they can get away with it without. Uh, the government stepping in and saying uh, this is this is not okay. Absolutely. Well, and, and I think that w- what's interesting though is, in that situation, Amazon would be the victim. Yep. Right. Because Apple would say, "Hey, you have to do what we say, or yep. you're out." Yep. Right. But then, if you go a step deeper, Amazon is doing this to other people. Yep. Right. For they, sure. they're in their marketplace, yep. they say, hey, "Sure, you can come in and sell your items right in our marketplace, yep. but we're going to take, you know, sometimes more than thirty percent." Yeah. Right. And, and so I think that. Um, oh, and it, by the way, we're going to take Amazon Basics and we're going to surface them above your products, <laughs> and uh, and we're going to slowly squeeze out your business. Yep. Right. And yeah. and and Amazon's doing that to, um, to 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 potentially millions of business owners across the country. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it is. Uh, I, I saw a, a stat, and I forget the exact Around the number, world, but you know. it, it was. Uh, I think it was like over thirty or forty percent of all e-commerce purchases uh, went through Amazon. Yeah. Right, in some form or fashion, um, in a year. And I was. I mean, it's just. It, it's insane to think that a company, you know, that what, uh, probably twenty years ago, right, or, yep. or uh, probably no less than thirty years ago, existed. Now, you know, holds that much. Yeah. Uh, so they've grown pretty quick. Uh, all right. So so. Um, Let's go back to uh, to crypto specifically, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, really into entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, obviously understanding the platform risk and, and all these key components. Yeah. H- like, how do you initially start to explore this idea of decentralization, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin? Like, like what? Yeah. Like at what point does that start to at least become a thought in your head? And, and like, what totally. do you do? You know, once you get it. Well, actually, so building off of the platform risk, we'll just pick yep. it up right from that point in the in the story. Um, one pretty jarring thing that happened with that business is uh, our business relied upon us being able to um, work with uh, data yep. that was accessed by these companies mm-hmm. through the Facebook platform. Yep. And Facebook didn't like that we were doing this analysis mm-hmm. on behalf of these companies. Mm-hmm. And they sent us a cease and desist. Got it. And told us we could no longer operate on their platform in that, Got in that it. fashion. Um, how'd that feel? Uh, that was, that was terrible. That was a, <laughs> that was a really, you know, rough blow because it, 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 and of course, um, in retrospect, I would, I would think knowing what I know now, it doesn't make sense to, to, to rest your business completely on some other business. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but when, when you are hit with that, when that is, that is something that comes up, 
it's uh it's just like it it you know shatters your world it's uh it's it's like what are we going to do now i mean we could we could have tried to we could have moved into a different direction mm-hmm. tried to tried to pivot come up come up with a different product offering that was co- that wasn't quite the same uh <coughs> but it was just a really really tough situation to be in and uh it was either it was either pivot or 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 work on something else and um and ultimately, we made the call that uh, it didn't make sense to go forward. Yep, absolutely. And, and so, uh, okay, let's go work on something else, right? W- what is kind of that next thing, or what did you start exploring from yeah. there? Um, so after that, um, I moved back. I moved to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, like I said, I was in Philadelphia at the time working um, with uh, my two co-founders, um, Tony and Chuck. And so I moved moved to New York. Um my next i decided that the next thing that i wanted to do was to start another company Mm -hmm. um but before i did i wanted to learn from some uh from some uh successful ceos Mm -hmm. um and some industry experts uh both about how to run a business and about what are some really really um learn from industry experts about problems that they uh, come across on a daily basis um, or that they're addressing or that they have uh, quite a bit of exposure to. Mm-hmm. And so I did two things. One, I got a job at um, this uh, health technology company called OmniActive, mm-hmm. uh, shadowing the CEO mm-hmm. of that company. Uh, and I shadowed him for about six months. Um, and then the second thing that I did was I was really interested in healthcare at the time, and I started uh, shadowing this doctor mm-hmm. as well, um, this gastroenterologist, and um, really trying to learn both uh, both how to run uh, a business from someone who who um, was running a 200-person uh, business at the time, um, and also learn firsthand what it's like to be in a doctor's office what are the types of problems that they're facing how could technology uh uh, bring um the healthcare space forward um and uh through those two things i I learned quite a quite a bit um towards the end like basically around like may of 2013 Mm -hmm. um i started getting started getting into bitcoin a little bit Mm -hmm. A, a friend of mine he kept kept talking about it kept introducing me to things kept sending me all these uh, articles and videos in the white paper and um and you know it was one of those things where at first i'm uh, i'm skeptical um but i just kept getting exposed to it and throughout that month i got really really excited about bitcoin and um around the same time as well i was living in new york uh bumped into co-founder Manib, uh, who you had in the podcast earlier. Um, and, uh, we just kept bumping into each other in, uh, in the Princeton club of New York on the street. We decided to get drinks talking about what were, you know, startups and some ideas we had. And at some point we were like, Hey, we should start a company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that the, the approach there, it was separate from any particular idea. We were thinking the team's going to come first. Let's start up a company. Let it, let us, um, experiment with a few different things and figure out what we're both into. Yep. And, uh, we can 
rapidly prototype things and put them on the market and see, get feedback from users and so on. And so we did that. Uh, we had a few ideas uh, that we that we tested. One was around um, like network networking and helping people meet each other. Another one was in healthcare. We we messed around with a few different things, and uh, all throughout that same time, I still kept getting more and more into Bitcoin. And a big part of this was learning about uh, the Byzantine Generals problem, learning about uh, what was the actual technology behind Bitcoin blockchain technology, learning about like what was the ethos behind it and decentralization and participating in the Bitcoin subreddit and all mm-hmm. these, and, and, the, and the Bitcoin forums and all these communities. And I was slowly getting indoctrinated. I was, I was drinking the Kool-Aid and it felt really good, you know? Uh, and uh, that's, that was, uh, I was just getting more and more into that. And, I, and as many of and I were going through and experimenting with these different uh, products and trying them out, and trying one, putting it out on the market, didn't work. Let's let's try another one. Seemed might have been working a little bit, but we hated it. You know, <laughs> so whatever, for whatever reason. Uh, throughout this, um, a lot of this also that I was that I was really being exposed to. Many um, was saying that I couldn't stop talking about Bitcoin in yep. the office, and uh, and just kept getting him into it, and we just start started talking about it a lot more and more, and now it. At first, again, he's also skeptical. Starts uh, starts getting more and more into it as well, and over time, now we're both hooked. Mm-hmm. And we applied to Y Combinator with this uh, this product. It was called Scope. It was like I was ta- talking about before this um, this tool for networking for for meeting people. Um, it would essentially like you connect your Gmail and your your LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook, and it would pull in all your data and then it would tell you if you wanted to meet this person, who you should get an introduction to. Mm-hmm. Like who was the, who was your friend who knew this person the best or could possibly reach them because they were coworkers or yep. had some connection. And so we were working on that. We applied to Y Combinator. We, uh, we ultimately got rejected, but even it, it's, it's hard to know exactly when this was, but even before, like it might've been right when we submitted the application or something, we were, we were starting to hatch the ideas of this of this decentralized internet because mm-hmm. we were thinking wait a second as we're building this we're running into many different issues with the linkedin api and and google and facebook and and, and twitter and it's such a shame that all of this data that is rightfully the users mm-hmm. is being locked up by these businesses. Mm-hmm. It's such a shame that there are so many interesting things that could be built that can't be built in a meaningful way because of the level of control that all these businesses have over the digital world. And we thought, well, what would it look like if the internet were different? What would it look like if the internet was really about the people about Mm -hmm. the individual user and the internet revolved around us instead of revolving around data silos Mm -hmm. and that's when blockstack was born that's when at the time the our first our first idea for for the name was called free graph ah interesting yeah because it was the first the first layer that we were envisioning the first inspiration 
was this free and open social graph that mm-hmm. could have obviously private data, mm-hmm. but the important thing was that it was free and controlled by each person by the people. So you, in, in that uh, model, you as the user would be able to elect out of all of the data that I have available, you know, in this graph, yep. I want to expose X percent. Yes. And you could do that yeah. and keep the rest private. Exactly. And even the data that you have private, it's under your control. And mm-hmm. so if you have, you could have software that is able to run on your computer, run in your browser, yep. uh, on your mobile phone, that would... <coughs> Keep keep the data still on your device, and analyze it. Do something with it, and help you uh, do whatever you're trying to do. So, yep. just because it's private doesn't mean that it's not uh, able to be used. Like you could you could it's theori- accessible. It's accessible. You could theoretically like navigate an entire private graph, mm-hmm. right? Um, and with 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 individual operations and permissions like, along the way, you know, there's so many things that you can do, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it, it's one of these interesting things. So uh, I've thought for a really long time that, um, you know, humans are uh, compensated for the value that they create, yep. right? And, and so uh, we usually think of that as uh, output in terms of work, yes. right? And so uh, there's people who trade their time, yep. right? There's people who trade their manual labor. Yeah. There's people who trade their intellectual yeah. abilities, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the, uh, and that's all valuable in a analog or a digital world, depending on yep. what's you know value you're creating, right? So obviously manual labor is not as uh, valuable to an internet company as say you know a landscaping company, yep. right? Intellectual capabilities are much much more valuable to mm-hmm. an internet company than that landscaping business, yep. right? Now, one thing that is uh, ubiquitous is data. Yep. And so whether you're a landscaping company, an internet company, or something else, data is in some way used in your business, right? Whether it's the data that your employees create, yep. the data that your um, customers create in the market, you know, whatever. If you look at what humans have been able to monetize for themselves, either manual labor, intelligence, well, there's a third bucket that has been unmonetized for a really long time, mm-hmm. which is the data in which they create. Yeah. Right. Totally. And so it is an output that is based on the actions that that human takes. Why not? Yeah. Right. And, and I think your argument here is it's because somebody else realized that that data was valuable and they were able to silo it. Yes. Not give you access to it and then use it to monetize, right? Because they don't actually sell the data. What they do is they allow the data to be used. Yeah, they allow the data to be used for targeting and things like that, but they control the data. You don't have that data, and so you can't monetize it, and we've operated on the internet like that for the last 15, 20 years, right? exactly. Yeah, they sell the ability for a business to target a specific audience without actually seeing the data. Absolutely. Um, And, and, And so, if we continue on this path, right? So, so I think there's a couple of key components here. One is, hey, we've got these products that frankly operate pretty well, yep. right? You know, if yep. you look at, think about from Google to Facebook to LinkedIn, Twitter, right? These are some of the products that are, you know, heavily, heavily integrated into yep. our lives. I think well, we spend- I don't know if LinkedIn works. <laughs> okay, so Ryan, Ryan's uh, not on the LinkedIn train, right? <laughs> but but I, I think that, um, you know, we use th- these products a lot and, yep. and uh, they, they've 
brought a lot of value to us, yep. but there's obviously issues, right, in terms of whether it's privacy, trust, right, uh, the data uh, manipulation, the monetization of data for individuals, all this stuff. Let's say it doesn't change, right? I don't even know if you can say fix, but it doesn't change. Yeah, yeah. And we continue down this path over the next 20, 30, 50 years, what does that world begin to look like? Like, what are the, your fears along that path uh, that you think are likely to occur? I, I think I think there's a few problems, a few things that could really happen. Um, one is something that we're seeing already, which is a, just a massive slowdown in innovation across the entire internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so few new, you know, new social companies coming out, um, gaining traction. So few companies actually getting funded because they know that there's, you know, wh- what do they call it? The uh, there's the Facebook kill zone, the Amazon kill zone, and the Google kill zone. Yep. Right. If you're doing something that is in any way in those er- those spheres of influence mm-hmm. of those three companies, um, you you got to watch out. I mean, if you're doing an e-commerce company, you first have to answer, well, how do you how do you beat Amazon? How do you beat Amazon? Or mm-hmm. or how do you survive in a world where Amazon is this all-powerful all e-commerce uh, lord, mm-hmm. right? If you're doing something that is at all related to um, social networking, how do you make the case that Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, whatever, is not going to eat your lunch? Absolutely. Or that you can even get traction, right? Um, or that, or that Instagram's not going to copy your features, like mm-hmm. your the core feature of your business, like like what they what they did with Snapchat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even Snapchat wasn't safe, mm-hmm. right? And um, and of course, you could say there's other reasons why Snapchat um, kind of has started on on a decline. Um, but <coughs> you look at uh, in uh, in China, right? There, um, there's a really good article that came out recently that was talking about how uh, the vast majority of businesses that have any chance of getting any uh, mid to late stage traction uh, are end up being the ones that are funded by uh, two or three companies, Tencent, Baidu, yep. um, Alibaba, yep. right? Um, and they actually have huge investing arms mm-hmm. where they essentially anoint the winners mm-hmm. right if you're if you're suddenly anointed by one of them every other competitor just goes to the wayside um we saw this happen with meerkat mm-hmm. and with uh periscope mm-hmm. right meerkat was getting a lot of uh, a lot of traction running on you know essentially um it, you know it was running somewhat on twitter uh so was periscope um twitter wanted to acquire meerkat meerkat said no Twitter shut down Meerkat, said, okay, you don't get to play anymore. Acquired Periscope and integrated Periscope deeply into Twitter. Yep. So they just were the kingmaker mm-hmm. right then. And they killed a business at their own whims. Um, and they decided to make this other business the winner. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think, right, because I hear you, and I, and I yep. think that a lot of people will uh, agree with you. Right. Yep. So I think it's important for us to talk about the flip side of that argument. Yep. Right. If you believe in a capitalistic society. Yep. Right. Isn't that just competition? <clears throat> it is competition, but it it gets to. It gets to a certain point 
where these are no longer simply businesses that provide services and products. They are prov- they are in a sense providing a digital world to people, mm-hmm. right? That you are in, mm-hmm. which is closer to something like a city, mm-hmm. right? It's closer to something like a, uh, you know, land and the buildings and all of the um, communication and all of the uh, landlines and everything that, 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 that is part of a city, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so we have we have to separate like what are the like that's that's more the equivalent of the digital world mm-hmm. and you know we have certain laws in, in the united states and in countries around the world um that are meant that are sp- that are contrived laws in a sense they're they're not they're not like natural laws they yep. are they're just come up they man-made re- man-made they are invented they are whimsical we could have come up with any other set of laws and these laws are intended to have a particular effect mm-hmm. right we have intellectual property law right intellectual property law specifically was designed to promote innovation mm-hmm. right it's not because there was some natural right to ideas um that's not in the, at least in the United States, that's not that's the not think that's not the thinking there. Um, it was specifically designed because it was believed that it was what was needed mm-hmm. to ensure innovation. If you had a product and someone else uh, copied the product and used a label that was identical, how would how how could that business possibly operate and be able to have trust and be able to you know outside of a, a single town absolutely um if if anyone could just copy your label and no one would know that it was the same product maybe it even have poison in it or something right yep and so that was genuinely a very difficult a, a very um a very rough situation to be in you had to address that with trademark mm-hmm. right obviously you have to do address that with copyright for written works and uh, other types of creative works um and patents were meant to specifically uh incentivize people to move away from a model that is predicated on trade secrets Mm -hmm. and more which hurts innovation and more towards a model where entrepreneurs business people are incentivized to disclose their secrets so that a certain number of years from that point in time the world could build off of it yep right so these were things that were they were not natural they were contrived Mm -hmm. they were specifically designed with a goal in mind to promote innovation right and because we decided as a society that we value prosperity, that we value competition, that we value a well-functioning economy, mm-hmm. right? If that economy no longer works for us, if that economy is no longer serving us, if competition breaks down, right? And it tends towards monopolies, right? Mm-hmm. That's not capitalism. You end up in a situation where you have single corporations that can decide everything that you know think about a single business in an area that has the ability to that is, that is the only provider of a, of a very important resource electricity internet mm-hmm. water what if they started to start engaging in a in a in a situation where they can um cut off access to anyone they want yep. right and or price manipulation price manipulation all, all kinds of stuff. price yeah uh price manipulation um, they say, well, you know what, we're, you know, our electricity prices are no longer fixed rate. They're now a percentage of your, of your income, mm-hmm. uh, percentage of your net worth. Mm-hmm. So if you are, 
whatever you know you, you you're now going to get you're gonna, now going to be charged a hundred thousand dollars a year for for electricity just because we said so um <clears throat> the government would step in and say no this is not okay because this is so important to our society to be functioning well yep. that we can't allow this to happen right now you can do that with government you can do that with other mechanisms in place mm-hmm. right some mechanisms for for um, correcting this obviously we, we know we're very familiar with government historically another mechanism was violence right we yep. know that some people would would say like no you can't cut off my electricity um, you can't behave this way um, you're, you violated our contract and then violence would ensue mm-hmm. and one of the reasons why we use governments is because we don't want it to resort to violence yep right um, still there are other ways that we can we can address this we can address this with um other types of contracts between individuals between corporations um and specifically in the digital world we have some some very interesting capabilities where we could create some level of governance Mm -hmm. using or some level of uh social contracts between millions upon millions potentially billions of people that doesn't require a uh, what we would consider traditionally to be a government. Yep. Uh, and there are interesting things that we can now do in the digital world that we maybe aren't as, you know, we have uh, less capabilities to do in the physical world. So in some sense, if you have one of these uh, externalities, you know, negative externalities from uh, the breakdown of a free market, like for example, tragedy of the commons, you need a way to address that. Mm-hmm. And um, it doesn't have to be government. It doesn't have to be violence. It can be some market mechanism. It mm-hmm. could be any of those things, um, but there has to be something or else the tragedy of the commons will persist or else whatever other externality negative externality that you w- think about will, pers- will persist. Would it be fair to say that government is needed in times of conflict when uh, the incentive system was not uh, adequately created before the conflict? Right. Basically, if you if you construct a situation where the incentive system through market forces, um, you know, personal incentives, et cetera, yep. uh, works so that people are aligned in their interest yep. and are uh, incentivized to act in the best or the common good. Yep. Right. When that's broken, then conflict ensues and government is needed to have a civil um, kind of recourse. Yep. To avoid violence, yes. Why don't we just fix the incentive system, right? Could we basically yeah, yeah. avoid all of the issues if we just fix the upfront incentive system yeah. of a lot of these different, you know, issues? Yeah. So I think <coughs> I, I think that's right. I think you need. There's a lot of cases where you do need to fix the incentive system. Mm-hmm. There are other cases where you need to fix the rules of the game, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, um, which is outside of incentives. So yep. I'll just give a quick example. Um, if you're in a situation where you have uh, patent law yep. that is granting monopolies yep. to certain corporations, then remember, patent, lo- patent law is a contrivance. Yep. And it is enforced via violence yep. by the government. So however many years, 17 years or whatever, depending on the, you know, the, the country, uh, exact um, laws for the industry, um, but let's just say something like 17 years to have a patent and have a monopoly on a particular thing. Yep. 
that is an unnatural phenomenon. That is that is like a that is a weird situation. That mm-hmm. is like um, that is not something that arises from the, the the natural physical world. You can make an argument that there is this pure capitalism that just you know happens to have patent law in it. Yep. Right. Um, you have to say that in order for us to have well-functioning capitalism, we need patent law of some mm-hmm. kind, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you could also make the argument that maybe capitalism would function better without patent law, mm-hmm. right? I don't know. Um, uh, I think there's that that might be a pretty bold claim. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily make that, but um, I do think that there's a lot of indis- like a lot of cases where uh, our patents are directly hurting our ability to have competition and our ability to, to deliver uh, efficient, low-cost, great products to consumers. Yep. Well, and, and, and it's uh, it's not black and white either, right? Yep. Like, like the binary nature of conversation, I think, is you know kind of what catches the mind share. Yep. But really, there are times where patents make a ton of sense, yep. right? And there's times where patents make zero sense. Yep. And, and so I think that that's part of the complexity for yep. a... Uh, for a regulator, for a lawmaker uh, to work through um, is difficult. Yeah. And, and so it's much easier just to put a blanket. There's patents. There's not patents. Yeah. And, totally. you know, and then and maybe maybe you reduce the number of years mm-hmm. that you can hold a patent on to. A- absolutely. Maybe it's maybe you, you have different law, different rules for different industries. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I think all of that is yeah. uh, is directly tied to you know, changing the rules of a game yep. can have a direct impact on the people playing the game, exactly. but but also can have a number of unforeseen impact, yep. right, um, around innovation, et cetera. Yes. But uh, you just have to realize that you are in a game. Yep. And you are in a game <clears throat> that was written, for, for which rules were written over a period of hundreds of years. Yep. And it's a particular game that only happened in our historical timeline, right? There could, there could be parallel universes for which there are completely different games. Absolutely. Right? You know, the, the whole, the fact that we have <clears throat> copyright that it can, ex- can extend a uh, lifetime of the, of, of the author plus 70 years is the kind of a ridiculous uh, result that we've mm-hmm. ended up with. Um, <clears throat> you know, in our particular timeline, we ended up with an internet um, that started out with a particular set of features that started yep. out with um, a domain name system that was highly, uh, highly insecure that started out with the client server model that started out uh, where we r- really had an emphasis on advertising models and everything needs to be free mm-hmm. as opposed to emphasizing, well, you should pay for your software, yep. right? That was just one particular way that the internet evolved. Mm-hmm. You know, we, w- a lot of the things that we participate in, that we are immersed in, mm-hmm. we don't realize that they're just really games, that they are the matrix yep. and that they have been written by someone else and that the game doesn't have to be that way. The rules don't have to be that way. You could rewrite the game. You could create a new game. You could invite people to play in that game with you. And, you know, we can go back to incentives. Like, we were talking about the rules around patents, but, of course, there's some really interesting rules around incentives. What does, what does an inco- what does, if you were to create a new digital world, a new digital economy, what does that look like? What is the, if you were to create a currency for that digital economy, how would it behave? Mm-hmm. If you were to create <coughs> monetary policy, right, if you were to create um, systems for how people could participate in the economy, for how people could contribute resources, for how they could um, extract things from the system, what would what would those the rules of those uh, of those interactions look like? And we, with blockchain technology, with the uh, these this entire industry around decentralization and decentralized applications, we can 
create systems that have rules for which we believe would lead to prosperity and would lead to um, really productive systems, right? That help lots of people. Absolutely. It, it, it's, um, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about like the financial system, right? And, and so this idea yeah. that um, I, I talk a lot about, you know, there's four types of assets you can own. So stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities. And then I say in the digital world, there's just digital stocks, digital currencies, right? Digital commodities, et cetera. Yep. And I would say that's a new financial system. And people say, well, how is it new, right? Mm-hmm. All you did yep. was improve it. Yep. And, and I think to your point here is we're watching the uh, building of a completely new digitally native world. Yep. And that includes communication, information, assets, yep. transactions, everything, yep. right? And so when that happens, of course, the people building that new digital world have th- have the uh, historical benefit of seeing what has played out, yeah, right? And, totally. and so they understand what do we have today. Yep. They understand how did we get here, mm-hmm. and now they can look and say, what do we build from scratch moving forward? Exactly. Right. Yep. And so there's going to be a big overlap, right? That that there's a lot of good things I think going on in the non digitally native world. Yes. Right. They, totally. they, look, you know, in humans today are much safer and more prosperous on an aggregate basis than they've ever been in the history of human race. Yep. And so we've done okay, mm-hmm. right? Yep. We can improve yep. and building this digital world, I think, is a piece of that. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that you know this nuance is really important of mm-hmm. you're building a new digital world with a piece of technology yep. that inherently is attacking one of the core um, competencies of the non-digitally native world, yes. right? The non-digitally native world is built on trust of centralized institutions and third parties. Because that's all we had. Exactly, and so I think that with this new piece of technology, what you're seeing is that's what's being attacked, right? And I think that it, it's, it's almost like um, a superpower, yep. right? And if you give a superpower to 100% of people, yep. probably 80% of people either misuse it or don't know what to do with it. Yep. 20% of people really know what to do with it, yeah, exactly. right? Yeah. And so it's you're, you're, you're giving this piece of technology to a bunch of people, and I think that's what we're seeing here. 80% of people have no clue what to do, or, or they're just applying it in weird, you know, unsustainable ways. Yeah. But there's probably, you know, 10, 20% of people who, wow, if I understand that I can use this technology to go after those centralized third-party institutions and recreate a digital world that is improved without them, yeah. that's a really interesting use case, right? Yeah, and, totally. And so I think that, um, you know, as we move into that world, what, what do you think the areas are that kind of come under attack first, right? What are those types of institutions um, that, that you think are just, you know, ripe for uh, replacement or disruption? Yeah. Um, and I just want to make a quick comment before I address that. Um, you were talking about, like, reinventing the financial system to some yep. extent. And like the, this. But I, <clears throat> I think that's, that's, that's right. And I, I just want to highlight the fact that when we talk about financials, when we talk about, like, all these different... Uh, components that are related to a financial system i would say that they are it's not like we're focusing on financial services or we're focusing on just finance it's that when you create an economy or you create a new digital realm uh, an important underpinning is how do people transact Mm mm-hmm how do people uh, exchange value? How do people collaborate and 
or or get other people to help them um how do people help other people you know and a lot of that comes down to well you need to make payments you need Mm -hmm. to you need to pay for goods you need to pay for labor you need to uh have some uh, agreement where if two people work together they can share in the upside right and all of these different things could be encoded as different components within a system Mm -hmm. but they're you know they are important underpinnings for a a lot of the rest of society that can get built on top and to some extent we're taking like we're building this in the digital world but we're not doing it for the digital world alone i mean we're we're upgrading our own world mm-hmm. to be partly digital absolutely you know what i mean well, well it, it's i mean look humans are a network of transactions and incentives yep that's it Right, and and so there are you know that that's a very very elementary it's explanation. A communication, like you know, it, it, well, it's yeah. just transaction of words, ideas, thoughts, etc. Okay, right, and, you, and yeah. so using it, a liberal when you really really yeah. boil it down, it's just yeah. transactions, yes, and incentives, gotcha. right, and, and so at that core, there's a lot of things that we've done that are probably not where we would have started yeah. if we were to start over, yes. right, now it doesn't make sense to jump out of a perfectly good airplane and kind of build a new one, yep. right? And, and so I think what we're seeing is people are saying, look, let's thoughtfully redesign some of this. Yep. Um, and, and so let, let's take it back to the internet itself, yep. right? Um, the internet has been uh, probably one of the most impactful in, uh, inventions of, I don't know, the last hundreds of years, yep. right? Yep. Um, and, and so I don't think anyone could deny the positive impact it has had in the world, yeah. right? In terms of um, really connecting people, I- empowering people, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, but there's these negative side effects of it. We right? wouldn't know each other if it weren't for the internet. Uh, absolutely. We, Look, I, we wouldn't, I wouldn't be sitting here, you know. It, it's funny you say this. How ma- What percentage of your friends do you think that you would not know if the internet didn't exist? I don't know, 90%? A high percentage, yeah. right? Yeah. What percentage of the people that you knew kind of pre-internet right so, so you were probably elementary middle school didn't yeah. really you know the internet was kind of a thing but you didn't really access it every day that type of thing yeah what percentage of those people are you still in contact with and only because of the internet probably almost all of them yeah a lot of a lot of it's yeah because of the internet for sure yeah right if yeah. you didn't have the internet you would have lost touch with all of them. yes exactly yeah and, and, and so I, I think just that alone is pretty cool yeah right for sure um walk me through how do you think through the positive in impact of the internet, right? In this kind of centralized model yep. versus these negative side effects, right? So privacy, security, um, you know, the, the inability to control your data, you know, yeah. all these things that are kind of hot topics. What, what, how do you think through that balance? Yeah. I mean, you know, first of all, I say like, I do truly believe the internet's like just so immensely positive, like on the net positive side. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like seriously moved the world forward. Uh, on so many different levels. I mean, every every um, major business in the world is, is impacted by the internet in some way and has to have like a very serious um, uh, engagement with the internet. All Absolutely. of us, obviously, like billions of people on social media, Facebook and Twitter and everything. Um, the incredible benefits that we get from having knowledge at our fingertips, mm-hmm. um, the ability to uh share things books you know things that we're doing 
um, I mean, humans are exponentially smarter because of the internet. Yeah. Right. On an individual basis, the amount of knowledge that you would have. I mean, yeah, to some extent. First post internet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is incredible. Yeah. Right now they, now they also. There's a lot of misinformation. Well, you know, completely. Like that brings people backwards, but yeah. Uh, In, okay. So let's, let's explore that for a second. Right. Even the misinformation. Yeah. Right. 100% 100% of the information that those people consume is not misinformation, obviously, right? Yeah, yeah. 100% of it's not accurate either. I think that the amount of misinformation could be overstated, right? If you think about all the information yeah. that you are consuming on the internet on a daily basis, I just don't see people consuming, you know, kind of mid double digit percentages of misinformation, right? So on an aggregate okay. basis, if you look at all the data that you consume, yeah. it's not like 50% of the information you consume is, is misleading, yeah, right? Yeah. Now, the counter argument to that is it doesn't need to be 50%. It doesn't. It actually just needs it's to be the most, you know, the, the two most, most important pieces yes. of information. The, 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 the pieces of information that drive your most important decisions throughout the day. Absolutely. Right, or th- throughout the year. Absolutely. Um, there are some, if you go like through y- the YouTube, like, tunnels i don't know if you've ever done that but it, it gets kind of weird uh reddit is uh is the place where i've seen oh like, yeah, yeah. You, you just like what are you people talking about <laughs> yeah exactly um okay all right so so uh we've got the internet right we're, we're kind of moving along here talk to me about what uh what your thoughts on this like decentralized internet where uh you're able to use you know technology whether it's blockchain or other yeah. technologies to really attack those centralized kind of third-party institutions um, that again are just playing middleman to those transactions and incentives. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, well, actually, before we get into that, okay, I just want to cover a couple more things um, <clears throat> because we got a chance to talk about like innovation. Yep. How that's being hampered, um, that's being really stifled by um, low competition. Yep. Um, and uh well actually i have just one more comment to make on that that's just i love talking about your 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 show man just keep going (laughs) (laughs) whatever you want to talk about (laughs) no no we'll 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 quickly come back to this um but uh there's i mean there's there's just there's a lot of debate around really censorship on Mm -hmm. twitter and facebook and all these different uh platforms and people will talk about well you know isn't it isn't it private property of these businesses they have a right to um they have a right to do what they yep. want with their own private property and <clears throat> and to some extent that is true um but in another sense it's not mm-hmm. because what is actually happening is when you have a profile on that social network yep there is a piece of that that you own mm-hmm. you know you have created something with you know obviously within their within their walled garden yep. right but you have put in work into it yep you've put labor into that yep and when that happens you come you you till the soil regularly um in and in within the confines of something that's owned by an, another particular business you actually do have rights you know um, especially if you do that over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we shouldn't, you know, it, it's kind of like a, th- there should be a difference between thinking about like 
who owns the building, who owns the um, apartment within the building, and who is subletting from that apartment within that building, within yep. that city. You know what I mean? So the, the ways that we look at property um, on the physical earth, we have, we have a good sense for that. We've defined that over, over thousands of years. This is a generally accepted construct yes. of, of these different variations to ownership. Exactly. We have not addressed that when it comes to um, when it comes to uh, these the, the digital world. Mm-hmm. When it, you know, think about social networks. I mean, as an example, right? You have what are you? Twitter.com/slash/a Pompliano. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm just advertising your Twitter right now. So, Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. So w- it, let's unpack that for a second. What you are is you are you have own a property called a Pompliano on Twitter.com. Well, what some people don't realize is that Twitter owns a property on a network called .com mm-hmm. that's owned by VeriSign. Mm-hmm. So what if Twitter kicked you off and you were friends with the CEO of VeriSign? I don't know. Yep. And Or somehow you were able to... And they kicked Twitter off. And they kicked Twitter off. They were like, you lose your .com. Mm-hmm. And by the way, then Twitter complains to ICANN, mm-hmm. and ICANN says, "Hey, Verisign, that was not cool. We're kicking you off of, we're, we're revoking your com, mm-hmm. and we're giving it to Google." Mm-hmm. So y- you yeah. have to think about like what are like what does digital ownership actually mean mm-hmm. in a world like that? And if there is some problem to some extent because we don't have a good framework for that and because no one's stepping in and no one's really like making these rules really just comes down to whoever has the leverage yep makes the whoever whoever has the physical ability to do something in the digital world ends up coming out on top as long as it doesn't alert it doesn't like trigger a government to think wait a second that's illegal mm-hmm. and in this case um we just really have to get down into that well and I, and I think you know if you really go deep on this censorship issue right so um you know i i, I tweeted uh, a while ago and, and yeah. got people all rallied up because i said you know censorship in any form is a slippery slope yeah. right and it is a violation of all of our rights yes and so I, I think that people, you know, they, they kind of ran with that and they were saying, hey, you know, there's definitely forms of censorship that are appropriate, right? And I think that the key component here is, you know, just like we were talking about the patent laws, mm. there's different forms of censorship, yeah. right? So, for example, if these social platforms want to remove somebody, yeah. they can f- full-on blackball them, prevent, you know, technology-driven prevention of using that platform, yeah, right. So you can no longer sign and use your account, etc. Yeah, a watered down version of that could be, you can go on and you can post, but maybe they're not going to give you as much distribution. This whole yep. shadow, shadow banning ban, yeah. and, and all stuff, right? Then there's a world where actually we're going to keep the distribution the same, but we're going to put some sort of you know cover or opt in to for people to see your content. Yeah. So if you scroll through your feed and you saw something and it said, hey, you know this content isn't you know, it's something that Twitter stands behind, yep. blah, blah, whatever. If you would still like to see it, you know, click through and then you can see it, sure, sure. right? So, so, so it's a way to kind of yeah. uh, alert people and they can opt in. You can go all the way down that rabbit hole, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, 
I think that what people in the United States specifically forget a lot of times because we live in this democratic society where free speech is encouraged, et cetera, is yep. this is not the environment for many people around the world. Right. And so we don't think that if, you know, use Twitter, for example, because they're actually pretty good with not censoring people. But yep. let's just say that they did start to censor, you know, kind of all of the fringe or alternative, you know, viewpoints. Yeah. Right. And so whether, you know, all ends of the political spectrum, all kind of different, you know, ideas, they basically said, look, if you don't fit within... Antifa's getting out of hand, we got to censor yeah, them. Yeah, everybody, you know, right? right? <laughs> they just started saying, look, you know, we're, we're going to start censoring all this stuff. Yeah. I think there'll be this uproar from everyone, Yeah, right? Where they get away from it on the censorship side is when they censor somebody that majority of people don't agree with, right? Because then it's, oh, well, that per- yeah. that's a bad person, right? That's a bad yes. viewpoint. That's a bad idea, right? And so the slippery slope to that is well when they start censoring any idea who's to say where the line is yeah who's to say where the bad ideas end and the, totally. and the good ideas start? and it highlights who is the decision maker absolutely right and and so i think that that's part of this whole censorship thing because we see it in other countries yep. around the world yep. is we see outright banning mm-hmm. or you know uh the the ones that are the most kind of egregious to me are um in politics and you know a lot of these countries they may just bail uh they just may jail their opponent yeah yeah. <laughs> right well, and, and so you're literally that's the utmost censorship sure, yeah. that you can apply I mean, to somebody if you think about what freedom of speech is mm-hmm. freedom of speech is specifically the ability for the oppressed to communicate Absolutely. You don't need freedom of speech if you are in power by Absolutely. definition. Absolutely. Right? You don't need freedom of speech if you are n- if you do not have the potential threat of infringement upon your speech. For sure, right? So it's only applicable in cases where there's some version of op- oppressed, you know, group or whatever that uh, needs to be able to speak out that is being, and we might not agree with them. We might agree with them. It doesn't matter, right? You know, to some extent we have to be able to protect that and we have to figure out, um, I I think we really have to figure out exactly how we do communication. Yep. In the digital world, because it was so, it's so early with this. Yeah. So uh, somebody once told me, and it's something that, that I, it really, you know, kind of, stayed with me is this idea that one of the most democratic things you can do is disagree with someone and still protect their right to share those ideas. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And I think that's a really big <coughs> leap for a lot of people. Yeah. Right. Um, all right. So, so uh, I, I think that, you know, we're setting the stage very nicely for there's issues, yes. right? Net good internet, but still a lot of different issues that either uh, one, we haven't had to deal with, right? Yep. Two, we've chosen not to make decisions on. Um, so we talked about the innovation, yep. freedom to innovate. We talked about censorship. Yep. Um, I think the third major one is privacy. Mm-hmm. What, what is what is actually being done with our data? Yep. Um, so w- walk me through, what, what do you think the issues are today? What, you know, If you had to say, what's one thing that the centralized third-party companies are doing with data that people may not be aware of that you think they should know? What is yeah. that? <clears throat> I actually think it's um, it's maybe not what people think. Okay. Or it's not, and it wasn't even in the public conversation until this past year. Mm-hmm. And that is the ability 
to manipulate your views mm-hmm. based on information about you. Yep. Right. It is like once we have all this information about you, once we once we have information about how you respond to things, what you actually believe, how we have information about what are the things that you click on, what are the things that you keep coming back to. Yep. Uh, once you have all of that information, you can make some really, really uh, the, the, the deeper the analysis that you do and the more that you combine that with potentially other uh, information from other individuals, yep. you can then start to figure out, well, how do I, how do I indoctrinate this person? How do, you know, and, and, to, and there's, there's situations where this is intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, with the Cambridge Anal- Analytica uh, mm-hmm. scandal, um, there are situations where it might be unintentional, mm-hmm. where you have algorithms that are just feeding people into these content spirals like is happening on YouTube. Yep. Right. Where the algorithm's just optimizing for time on site. It's just optimizing for engagement. Mm-hmm. And what it doesn't realize is that it's going in a certain direction where it is driving people into this particular type of uh, content hole content, you know, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it goes back to, uh, Propaganda, yeah, right, sure. is at the at the cornerstone of this entire argument, yes. right? And, and so, we happen to call the propaganda that we believe to be harmless advertising, yes, <laughs> right, exactly. But it is still propaganda. Yeah, I mean, for and, sure. and so for Sigmund Freud and the you know the, the the beginnings of the advertising industry and po- like they call they even at the time propaganda was a positive term. Absolutely, you know? and, and, and we've turned it negative. Yes, right. It, it, it's also the idea that um, human psychology is a very you know, weird and strong thing. Yeah. And I think as people have begun to understand more and more about human psychology, there's, you know, really interesting things we can do to, uh, you know, benefit humans. Right. Yep. So there's a study that, that uh, has always caught my mind. Um, if, if when you wake up in the morning, I think it's like if you read uh, or see three positive headlines yep. before you read three negative headlines. Yeah people at the end of the day say that they had a better day. No way. Right. Okay. You know, That's pretty all, cool. all kinds of stuff like that. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so you can go and really you just f- literally flip them. They did, they saw both. So yeah. So, so, and then if they see three negative headlines at the start of the day, then at the end of the day, they actually yeah. report they were less happy or had a le- oh, less well, well day. Yeah. So there's this whole thing around like, you know, positive journalism, blah, blah, all stuff. Right. Yeah. Well, as you go deeper and deeper in there, what you realize is like in the military world, this is, you know, psychological warfare and, and yeah. all stuff. Like we change the nomenclature of what we are describing, yep. depending on the environment at yep. which it is applied. Yep. But at the end of the day, it's human psychology. Totally. Yeah. Right. And so, is it bad because it is inherently bad in some situations, or is it bad because we don't like it or we don't agree with it? Yeah. And that's the you know that that's a core question that I think a lot of people struggle with, a lot of people disagree with, and and, yes. it, and it kind of leads to these different perspectives on what technology should be built, how should it be applied, what exactly. are the rules, right? What are the incentives, all that stuff. Yeah, and I think I think we should take much more seriously the inf- behavioral information that we give off mm-hmm. and how that is y- how that is distributed. Yep, <clears throat> who gets access to that, and we should take much more seriously our regular exposure to advertisements yep you know uh in a in a talk i gave at the oslo freedom forum uh they actually introduced this concept of the fact that there are three digital sins three main digital sins that are <coughs> uh exerted upon individuals in the digital world and that is surveillance censorship and manipulation 
very interesting and i would say those are those are the three main things that as an individual Mm -hmm. uh, you need to be concerned about Mm -hmm. and um and there's a lot of push for people to install ad blockers and to to move away from these you know endlessly scrolling feeds with advertisements that are just you know uh conditioning us in a certain way um and and we need to make sure that we are both we're being careful about both the information that reaches into our minds Mm -hmm. the right access to the brain to our brains as well as the information that's leaving us which is the read access to our brain and and so how do we fix this stuff i mean the way that we fix this we have to move away from the current model the current Mm -hmm. relationship between users and and their software uh, actually before i ask how we fix it uh can we fix it like are we just screwed (laughs) <laughs> right? Are we so far yeah. down the down the rabbit hole that yeah. that there's no getting out, or do you think we actually can fix it? No, no, I I, d- I do think we can, okay. and I think right. it, I think it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not gonna come easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing good ever does. Right? Yep. Um, but but we can fix it. Okay. All right. So and, how do we do that? And first of all, there has to be a better system, mm-hmm. a system that serves us as consumers better. Mm-hmm. And second, um, consumers have to find that and appreciate it and understand it. Yep. And when I say this better system, what I mean is a different relationship between consumers and their software and Mm -hmm. and businesses. And that means that consumers are not essentially being harvested Mm -hmm. for their data and their attention. Mm -hmm. That is what's happening currently with Facebook, with Twitter, with, with Instagram, with all these different businesses these different social networks, we are being harvested in essence. Mm-hmm. We are the audience, right? And businesses are paying to reach us and to be able to have right access to our brain. Mm-hmm. And Facebook has read access to our brain and the businesses say, well, I want this, these characteristics. Facebook reads in the information, has a huge database, a dossier on you, and is able to serve you with propaganda. And in some in some senses, it's exactly what you wanted to be able to buy this new jacket, right? Whatever. And sometimes it's not. And sometimes it's something that um, it is. It really just changes your thinking. So we need to we need to move away from that. I would say you know a new model very important uh, to rethink business models to mm-hmm. rethink uh, advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, not saying ad- advertising is categorically bad, mm-hmm. but I, I do believe that the type of advertising that we are being continuously exposed to every day. Um, in many cases when it does, it's not even clear what's the difference between an ad and what's, you know, maybe you can see in small fine print, but like what's an ad and what is uh, just content that is being algorithmically surfaced to you. Yep. Right. Um, so, so th- I think that's important that we move away from it. I think it's also important that we move towards a model where we have choice Mm-hmm. with our software given a particular use case mm-hmm. or given a particular uh, vertical, product vertical. So, for example, with email, we have choice, mm-hmm. right? You can email me. I can email you. It doesn't matter what email provider we have, right? Mm-hmm. I can use Gmail. You can use Outlook. Someone else can use AOL, right? If, knock them, you know, yep. if they're up to <laughs> um, But the cool thing about email is it's a true decentralized system. Mm -hmm. It is potentially the original decentralized, uh, application network. Mm -hmm. And you have a series of protocols and 
many different pieces of software that all speak those protocols. Mm -hmm. And that means that each, every business who's on the email network can innovate independently. New features can be introduced. Other businesses can copy those features. There's high level of competition. Uh, and you know, there might be some, like some large players that get a lot of part, por uh, large percentage of the market share, but um, there's still preserved freedom for the mm -hmm. consumer. And that's, I think that's a very fine situation to be in. Gmail has a lot of market share. Outlook has a lot of market share. That's fine. You know, you can ultimately choose and you can move your data with you from one to another. And it's actually meaningful. Mm -hmm. uh, contrast that with something like Facebook where all they give you is a, an export. You can export your, your data. That's useless. Mm -hmm. There's no, you can't bring your social graph with you. You can't, you know. Yeah, I mean, but the way you're describing is, is data is an asset. Yes, right, exactly. it, it is a personal asset that yeah. you own, and therefore you should not be required to give it away for free. Yes, right, and just because these social networks have been built and they've reached yeah. such massive scale, right, yeah. the ability to basically go play in a different sandbox. Yeah, right. Um, the, the example I, and, and the reason I use that expression is like if you know everyone's on the playground, they're playing in a sandbox. There's one ball. Yeah. You brought the ball. Well, it's socially unacceptable in many cases for you to take that ball and leave and go play somewhere else. Yeah. Because everyone gets mad at you. Yeah, yeah. Right. But if it is your ball, you should be allowed to do that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so that there's a trade off there. Yeah. Now I think with data, um, and, and and this may kind of skip us ahead a little bit, but if it's a personal asset, right, does that mean that all of a sudden it's like a balance sheet where it sits next to my stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, and my data? Right? Can I transact that data? Can I actually sell it to some people and monetize it? Yeah. Can I use it as a uh, as a um, as, as a badge to get into certain networks? Right. So hey, you want to use Facebook? Great. Yeah. You choose to say yes. Here's my data, and I'm going to filter out the things I don't want you to have about yeah. me. Right. And then now you you give me entry into your network. Yeah. Right. It because now you go into a whole different rabbit hole where data is that asset. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I think so. I mean, and I, I would I would make a, a distinction between there's like there's data itself. There's things like reputation. They're all intertwined. Um, there is identity, right? Uh, to some extent, if you have data and you put it out there for the world, you publish it. Well, now everyone has it. You can't sell it because yep. everyone can get it for free. Um, reputation when you build that up you have ratings on airbnb you have ratings on uber um that reference you know statements about who you are and that can be utilized to gain you access to things it can be utilized to 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 um, allow you to participate in a business transaction that requires trust and so on and so forth um but yeah i think we should we're in a model today where the businesses have all the control a mm -hmm. few businesses mm -hmm. actually if you think about it like facebook google amazon and and apple and microsoft you could add to that as well um and the vast majority of the businesses and all of us as individuals are beholden to them mm -hmm. uh and that has many negative externalities for us and we need to move to a model where that isn't the case where we have control over our data, where we have the ability to uh, have our own privacy, where we have the ability to choose our own software, where we have the ability to have freedom of speech, where we have um, this level of competition that does encourage innovation. And all of those things together 
can be accomplished with a decentralized system. Uh, Do you think that, let's say that we get to that fully decentralized internet infrastructure, you know, consumer apps, everything is built in a way that uh, would be the the farthest end of the spectrum of decentralization, Mm -hmm. right? Do you think that the innovation pace can sustain, right? Can we actually continue to innovate in that space? And then two, what would be the negative side effect of reaching kind of full decentralization of the internet? Yeah. Um, well, I'd say, I mean, if you if, if you get to a world where there is like true decentralization, you, you get innovation picking up. You think that there's, a, there's a faster pace of innovation? Yes. yes. Okay, explain that. Well, you get more innovation because you get more experiments that can be attempted. It's a lot easier to go to market. It's a lot easier to get consumers, mm-hmm. right? Um, good luck, you know, pulling consumers away from uh, something like an Amazon, mm-hmm. right? Um, if there was a decentralized Amazon, mm-hmm. um, and of course the challenge is getting to that point where you could have a de- that decentralized Amazon that even can compete on user experience, can you know, has a series of service providers that can actually deliver upon the um, delivery times, promises, and things like that. That is an enormously complex situation. Mm-hmm. But you could end up replacing Amazon with a thousand businesses that each contribute resources to a decentralized e-commerce network. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at w- the way that BitTorrent operates, right? BitTorrent is really hundreds of different service providers all contributing to the underlying network, right? You have um, you have so many different nodes that are actually storing the files. You have many different trackers that are being run. You have so many different um, websites that allow you a window into the torrent network. That's incredible. You look at Bitcoin, what's happening there? You have uh, thousands of miners, dozens of mining pools, major mining pools, that are all contributing to maintain this network, mm-hmm. right? Uh, at the base layer in terms of mining, in terms of uh, keeping, making sure that Bitcoin doesn't have any downtime. Um, and then you have hundreds of businesses that are all providing services on top, transaction, uh, you know, uh, exchanges, wallets, whatever. You have this huge economy around, around a digital money system, mm-hmm. right? You have this huge economy around a digital file storage system. And you have all these inc- incredible experiments that are um, that are happening in the blockchain and decentralized uh, app industry, uh, like for example Filecoin, like for example um, uh, you know Augur, like all these other every all these different um, applications and systems that are being built on top of Bitcoin and Ethereum and uh, and and all these different systems. I, I think that that is uh, something to look. Mm-hmm. Um, where I do expect to see some really incredible things. I don't think, I think, I think Bitcoin and BitTorrent and email with the hundreds of businesses that are building on top of this network. That's just the beginning. And we're going to see so many more incredible platforms that emerge. Mm-hmm with hundreds of businesses that are making up the 
the core software, the under the, the infrastructure and everything above it. Yeah, it, it is truly incredible what can occur right between now and that happening. Yeah. Right. Um, all right. So what's one thing you believe in crypto blockchain decentralized world that you think a large majority of people would disagree with? Hmm. A contrarian view. I, th I feel like I have a lot, a ton of them. <laughs> it's just hard to bring to mind right now. Um, well, let me hear. What, can I hear what yours is? Ah, you usually I let people ask one question. You're yeah. jumping ahead. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah look, I, I think that uh, in this space, because it is so uh, heavily driven by technologists, there's a lot of focus on the actual technology, how it works, you know, what can you make um, the code do, et cetera. And I think uh, majority of the companies and projects that win are not going to be focused on the underlying technology, but they're gonna be focused on the user experience and user behaviors. Yep. And so this idea of uh, the companies today, uh, many of them are being built incorrectly yep. with the focus on the wrong thing yep. um, is scary, yep. right? Uh, and I think part of it is just that happens to be the types of people who yep. you know, were in early. You've got some Can you say focus on the right thing? Give so, for example, um, if you build a decentralized Twitter, mm -hmm. right, people are not going to use the decentralized version of Twitter if it is as good or worse of a user experience, yep. a, uh, a network effect, etc. Mm -hmm. In order to get people to use a decentralized Twitter, you have to be better experienced. Yep. Right? You have to pull them away from what they're already using. Yep. And so decentralization is a feature right it is not the reason why somebody's going to jump in, in terms yep. of the mass consumer there's yep. so, there's some subset of people that will jump just because it's decentralized yep. that all of a sudden makes decentralized one example it could be like um uh, regimes where there's censorship on twitter absolutely you know? absolutely you, they yeah. will actually it's a, it's enjoy a, it's a worse experience yeah they'll enjoy a worse yeah. experience for the decentralization than and the avoidance of censorship for yep. sure right mm -hmm. uh, but but the kind of mass consumer right is only going to jump if it's a better experience and so yep. if that is true right which i believe it is the focus has to be building a better twitter that oh by the way is also decentralized yes right yep. and so it can't be i'm building decentralized twitter mm -hmm. it's i'm building a better twitter yeah right and one of our core competencies or core ethos is that is decentralized yeah and so i think again very nuanced you know change but i think when you start to uh, describe it differently or focus on different metrics, yep. right, et cetera, uh, your time, energy, and resources is applied in different ways. Yes. And, and so it's not like some groundbreaking truth, right? Yep. I think it's actually pretty intuitive when somebody hears it. Yes, for sure. Yeah. I think it's just easy to focus on the sexy technology component right now, but hmm. over time I think really it is that user experience that, that yeah. ends up being the, the driving force. Yeah. Well, I think it also depends on like when you think about crossing the chasm, mm -hmm. how do you approach the market? Yep. Um, and uh, for those for people who haven't read the book, it's uh, I think pretty. Would you say it's a, it's like a staple, right? It's like absolutely. There's a joke that a friend of mine told me that was like, when you arrive at business school, they like have it waiting on your desk. Like <laughs> 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 um, the idea is like there's this uh, this adoption curve from like innovators to early adopters to the chasm, which is the hard part between the early adopters and the early majority, the late majority, and then the laggards. 
and it forms this like bell curve and um, there there's an argument to be made that, 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 that one of the one of the key points or takeaways is like if you go straight for the majority with your offering you are doomed to fail mm-hmm. and you have to you have to go for some innovator group and then some early adopter group and it they they use the term innovator to refer to like hyper early adopter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in that case, you do want to latch onto some community mm-hmm. and it, you know, um, in the, in the world f- where you know, if, if you're starting a decentralized Twitter as a competitor, you're not going to be able to compete on feature set yep. user experience. You can maybe come out with a product that has a better user experience, but has 5% of the features. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and there's probably people who want that. Yes. So you either you yeah, have to exactly. find them. Exactly. So I think you either come out with a 5% Twitter with a better user experience or you come out with like whatever 20% Twitter mm-hmm. with a worse user experience that specifically gives certain demographics something that they they would want. never go to Twitter for. Like then they and they absolutely want they they need this. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's like a hair and fire whoop and fire problem absolutely um. <laughs> um okay so uh last question for you um what is the one thing you have magic oh, wait, wait real oh, quick also we have a decentralized twitter on block stack oh really okay yes. all right all right so and it's it, called it's called afari okay so real quick yeah. walk me through what is uh currently built on block stack so you have sure. a, a decentralized twitter yep. afari yep you've got uh like a google docs type uh uh, product right yes so yeah it's google suite competitor so they have google docs equivalent okay a google sheets equivalent uh and some other uh, other applications as well it's called graphite docs graphite docs.com uh afari that's decentralized twitter that launched recently we have a, a decentralized instagram only for travel oh interesting and it's called travel stack very cool yeah so th- th- i think that's cool because they focused on they didn't try to just like do a decentralized Instagram, they are yep. focusing on a particular vertical. Absolutely. And they're like, you come to travel stack for travel Instagram, you know? Amazing. Yeah. Um, we also have stealthy, which is a decentralized equivalent of, uh, WeChat or, um, or, or, or uh, WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. Um, what other, what other Facebook businesses do we have competitors <laughs> to? <laughs> um, we don't have a decentralized Facebook yet. Um, we have, a, and w- when I say we, I mean the the, the, the network. We don't. Yep. Yeah. Th- th- there's all these different businesses, all these different teams, incredible teams that are building these apps on top of Blockstack. Uh, there is what else is there? Um, oh, there's a really cool decentralized multi-sig wallet oh, called Mistos. M-I-S-T-H-O-S. That is specifically geared towards multi-sig for businesses. And what their what their goal is is to do multi-sig for Bitcoin first. Mm-hmm. They're gonna have stacks at, at some point as well. They'll, they might do other uh, uh, other digital assets like like Ethereum and so on. Um, but then over time, they're going to do multi-sig for documents uh, and for cool. all the parts of the business. So that means if you want to change your certificate of cor- incorporation, if you want to change your bylaws, if you want to change your um, voting rights agreement, you could do that with a rule set 
on Mistos. The way that Mistos works is you create, uh, you, you instead of creating a wallet, you create a venture. And then you add partners to the venture. And then you have rules for how the partners can spend the money. Got it. So let's say you have five partners. Well, maybe all of the funds can be withdrawn with 100% of the partners approval, right? But if you want to use fewer partners, you can wait a longer period of time. So maybe three, three out of five partners takes a day or a week or something. Now, if partners, like let's say, let's say three of the partners, God forbid, died, mm-hmm. you can actually have the multi-sig degrade down to a two of five multi-sig uh. after three months. And all this happens with Bitcoin script. That's fucking really wild. Cool. And yeah. then all, and then all of the identity authentication storage, everything is is is, is powered by Blockstack. So that's it's like awesome. Bitcoin script and Blockstack, and that's it. That's that's a that's an incredible smart contract. I gotta say, Absolutely. using just Bitcoin script. Absolutely. Um, so so there's really cool things, that you, and and they're gonna add some other features in the future where you can do um, like have partners, have employees, mm-hmm. and they have different permissions. Maybe you need like you know five employees to authorize this, or but just one partner to author. You know. So yep. just really cool. Uh, it's just really cool, um, extremely powerful. Think of like the digital embodiment of the corporation with yep. all of its monetary assets, all of its uh, document-based assets and so on. Absolutely. It, it, it's fascinating to me how quickly this stuff is getting built, yep. right? And and, uh, and and how high quality it is. Yes, exactly. Right? Um, all right. So, uh, last question. You got a magic wand. You can wave it and change any one thing about the crypto blockchain decentralization, you know, movement. Uh, what do you change? My instinct, first thing that comes to my head, is the wild price swings, <laughs> the volatility, and the, the focus, price. the volatility, and the focus on speculation, and the focus on this, you know, hop. It's pure speculation. Pure speculation. Human the, greed. The token casino, the greed, yep. it's out of control. And the the investors that are trying to flip tokens and the, uh, you know, another thing I would say is the just the um, herd mentality and the fads, you know, it's the NFT fad. There was the, the, um, the, uh, you know, the NFTs, non-fungible tokens. I like to call them crypto collectibles because I think NFTs are the worst, na- you know, horrible name. Mm-hmm. The names in this industry. What have you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, people coming up with things that just have all, all these different, you know, it's just crazy. I mean, and then there's the whole token curated registry fad. I mean, they're, they're cool things. They're, they're mm-hmm. important to talk about. But I think... Stable coins, right? Stable there's coins. a bunch of those that oh came my God. out like, at once. Yeah. You know, everyone has a stable coin. Uh, th- and, and then in, there's just this herd mentality is like, you know, our thesis is stable coins. And then there's another one that's like, well, our thesis is privacy coins because, of mm-hmm. course, you know, well, we, you know, invest in scalability, scaling technology that, you know, has like, we just really, we're into the graph based, uh, you know, solutions to scaling. <laughs> well, we're really big on proof of stake, you know. Uh, <laughs> we're looking for, uh, you know, it's just, the, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's, uh, yeah, I think they describe one single company. Yeah. <laughs> 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 what do they do after they find that company? Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, awesome, man. Thank you so much for the time. I, I appreciate you spending so much with yeah, us. Yeah, for sure. And, Thank you and, for having uh, me on. Th- this, is, uh, this is fantastic. I think you've got a really interesting you know, view of the world, and uh, yeah. I think that uh, we are moving closer and closer to your vision every day. Yeah, for sure. Totally. Oh, wait, one more thought before oh, okay. we go. All Can right. I just yeah, of course. Okay, cool. Um, I There's a book that I'm reading right now. It's okay. I'm actually <clears throat> I'm kind of um, sad that I haven't gotten around to reading it until this point in time. Okay. It's a pretty famous book, especially for the science fiction buffs. It's called Neuromancer okay. by William Gibson. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've read, you read Snow Crash or I have. Okay, yeah, so, yeah. so uh, they actually give Snow Crash out to every Facebook hire. Do you really? They, okay, well then you need to I read yeah, Neuromancer yeah. because to some extent Snow Crash is a satire of Neuromancer. Oh, amazing! Yes. Okay, um, so and also Neuromancer inspired the Matrix. Actually, coined the term as they use it, the Matrix. Mm-hmm. Also coined the term cyberspace. Ah, yeah. Well, well sorry. Well, inaccurate William Gibson coined the term cyberspace in a previous book but he popularized it in Neuromancer got it um, extremely influential but I mean there are people who say that the way the internet turned out was largely inspired by Neuromancer by okay. yeah like people ended up building what they read in his book I mean Marita this know. weekend yeah Done. exactly <laughs> Do it. Um, and so when which is really an incredible moment in the book where you know you essentially you jack into the matrix that's mm-hmm. that's the way the, the world works there's a physical world just like in snow crash physical world there's a digital world you plug in and you're now in the digital world your neurons are actually wired up to the digital world and you're in there you're in the matrix and there is um this scene where the protagonist case mm-hmm. um he actually gets um, he ends up stealing from his employer and uh he's you know in deep with like some really shady people what they do instead of um instead of he's like are you gonna kill me whatever instead of killing him they they damage his neurons they say you're never gonna work in this town again and they're you're never gonna work again and they remove him completely from the matrix now wow. he's in the physical world he says that he feels trapped by his physical body the mm-hmm. fact that he can no longer enter the digital he can no longer be in that world and so what they've done is they made him not exist in the digital Right. That what to him and to them was it's the ultimate penalty, the ultimate penalty, the, mm-hmm. the most damaging thing that you could do to a person was deny them access to the digital. And one of the things that I worry about with where we're headed today is that we have a few businesses like Facebook and Google and, and Twitter and Amazon that are and, and Apple that are deciding who gets to exist in the digital. And in order for us to move to a world where the digital, the digital is actually pervasive and powerful and it is like physics, right? It just is Mm -hmm. because there's incredible, amazing things that you can do when, when, when digital just is, when it's just like physics and there's, there's no one to turn to because it just, it permeates. They call it in the book, a collective hallucination around Mm -hmm. the world. In order for us to get there, we need to have decentralized systems. We need to build a decentralized foundation. Mm-hmm. And all of the layers of the digital world need to be decentralized in that fashion. And that's that's where that's I... That's Blockstack. Yeah, that's Blockstack. There we go. That's the, that's, that's the whole industry. And, and I hope we can do some incredible things with Blockstack. Uh, you, uh, you, you've got a number of us that are cheering you on. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so best of luck with that. Well, thank I, you. I, I think it is a, uh, a worthy cause. And thank you so much for having me on. Of course. Yeah, All right, always a pleasure. 
Hey everyone, Pop here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.